Good morning, Peachtree. What a joy it is for us to get to celebrate God's word and to be together. Last week, we launched into a new series of messages on the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And part of the reason I like the Gospel of John is that John actually tells us why he's writing it. In chapter 20, verse 31, towards the end of his book, he says this. He says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And the way that Max Lucado truncates this verse and summarizes it is to say that the purpose of the Gospel of John is that we might have a life-giving belief. This is what we get to experience through what we will see in the pages of the Gospel of John and what the Spirit might do for us. For you see, the Gospel of John has all these different little encounters particularly with individuals and small groups of people. In the Gospel of John, through those encounters with Jesus, uh, we're changed. In other words, we're no longer cynical. We are no longer empty. We are no longer religious. We're no longer ashamed. We're no longer paralyzed. We're no longer hungry. We're no longer condemned. We're no longer blind. We're no longer vulnerable. We're no longer grieving. We're no longer two-faced. And we're no longer insignificant. In other words, this is a precursor to what happens at the end of the Bible where they say, no more, no more, no more. These are the things that are wiped away in the light of the gospel. Last week, we talked about being no longer cynical, that we live in this cynical age and that an encounter with Jesus, as Nathaniel experienced when he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? we discover that that cynicism washes away in the light of an encounter with Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to talk about no longer empty. And in order to kind of introduce that topic, I need to talk about my wife. Now, I know that this is a little dangerous to do this, but one of the things that I didn't know about Kelly when we started dating and then until we got married together was that there was this one avenue of this responsible, diligent, prepared, organized woman that just surprised me because it seemed almost out of character. You know that little light in your dashboard that comes on that lets you know that you're low on fuel? Well, for Kelly, that's just a suggestion that, hey, when it's convenient for you in the next four or five days, that maybe you ought to put some gas in your car. I was always amazed by how far she would try to push the car on fumes to be able to drive even when there wasn't much gas in the tank. I always pictured that Kelly was gonna be stranded somewhere on the side of the road because she ran out of gas. Well, I was excited um, when we bought a car in 2011 that it was the first car that had kind of a bunch of gadgets in it. And one of the gadgets was that it had one of those trip computers that could tell you not just some vague warning light, a sign that maybe you ought to go get gas, it actually told you how many miles you had until empty. Well, one morning I got into the car to take the kids to carpool because this was our family car. This is the car that we would drive to carpool. And it said, I don't know if you saw that in the picture, it said that we had two miles until we were empty. Well, I don't do this to throw my wife under the bus or to tease her through the lens of a video camera publicly in front of the congregation. I tell you the story because I don't think what she does is exceptional. I think it's normal that all of us have certain dimensions of our lives where we run on fumes. 
and that we push the envelope and that we ignore the warning signs and that we are almost to the point of empty. This is how many of us run our lives and we're about to see it in the Gospel of John, a life where things run out. John chapter two, starting in the first verse. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and the, Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour is not yet come. Just as an aside, I don't actually think that you ought to say that. Why do you involve me, woman? That only if you're the son of God, you should say that. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The miracle of water into wine. Episcopalians think that this is the crowning achievement of the gospel. Baptists might even think that maybe it was water into grape juice. Presbyterians, we want to know how Jesus did it so that we could replicate it so that we could make money off of it. We all have a different spin or a different angle of what it means to try to understand this story of water into wine. In fact, it's kind of hard to pick the worship songs today. I mean, what do you do? Turn to Mary or Will in the church and say, hey, let's sing 99 bottles of beer on the wall in order to prepare our hearts for this miracle? I loved this particular meme that I found on the internet this week where the sign was misplaced that said water uh, and it's clearly a wine aisle and it just put underneath, Jesus was here. This has to be one of the most perplexing miracles in all the New Testament. For you see, when Jesus healed somebody, we don't kind of question why Jesus healed someone. When Jesus raised someone from the dead, we don't question why he did it. But what's the motive here? What is Jesus trying to do? Well, in verse 11, John tells us that this is the first of many, many, many signs that we get to see in the life and the encounters with Jesus. And our lives are filled and saturated with all kinds of different signs. And the signs themselves might not be all that significant. The important thing about a sign is what it signifies. Let me see if I can give you an example. This week earlier was the college football championship. And as soon as the confetti cannons burst and the game was over and all of the Alabama players began to celebrate, you know what the first thing that they did was? They ran over to the sideline where they grabbed a bunch of $10 t-shirts and $10 hats. Now, if you would go back in time and you would talk to a 12-year-old boy who's going to dedicate his whole life, every waking hour and training moment to actually being, um, you know, a football player at the highest level. I mean, 
you know, you wouldn't go to that boy and say, hey, what's the first thing you're going to do when you, when you win that football game? And be like, you know what the most important thing is to me? Is the most important thing to me is I'm going to go get a t-shirt and a hat. Because you see, the, the important thing is not the t-shirt and the hat. It's what that t-shirt and that hat symbolizes. It symbolizes that you're a champion, that you've accomplished it. It's a symbol for all of the work and effort that you have done because now you've experienced what you always dreamed for. You see, one of the beautiful things about signs is that they point us into the direction of where we are supposed to go. So let's see if we can find out not just what the sign is, which is famous, water and wine, let's see if we can figure out what the significance is. Well, the significance is rooted in the fact that this is a wedding ceremony, and we are at day three of what often would be a week-long wedding ceremony. And to run out of wine was not some sort of minor social faux pas. It would have been a source of great shame to the family who was dealing with this. And so one of the things that happens about halfway through this wedding celebration is that we discover that there's no more wine that they have run out. Now, I just wanna pause there for a moment and ask you to reflect on what is it that you're running out of in your life right now? In the midst of this pandemic, are you running out of patience? Are you running out of kindness? Are you running out of gentleness? Maybe you're running out of willpower. Maybe you're running out of options. Or maybe one of the things that you're doing is that you're running out of hope. You know, back in 2019, they did this comprehensive survey with thousands and thousands of young adults, millennials, people in their 20s and 30s. So again, this is pre-pandemic here. And they asked a series of questions and were shocked by what they discovered. Let me show you the data here. 80% of those 20 and 30 year olds said that they didn't feel good enough in pretty much every aspect of their lives four out of five felt that way. And that three out of four or 75% felt overwhelmed, not by particular tasks or too much to do, but overwhelmed by life itself. You see, one of the things that's different about the gospel, that's different about pop psychology or self-help, um, we don't tell people, no, 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 you are good enough, or no, you know, don't be overwhelmed, use these tools. We say, of course you feel like you're not good enough because we all fall short of the glory of God. And of course we feel overwhelmed because we were never meant to try to do life on our own, that we are always meant to do life with God and to let him to help to fill our lives. You see, what we need to discover in the good news of the gospel, the thing that this sign is actually pointing to in its significance, what Jesus is trying to tell us, going all the way back to the dawn of creation, is that emptiness becomes abundance. That with him, those moments where we feel like we're not good enough, that we are overwhelmed, those are those moments where the sweet abundance of his goodness arrives. There's a true story of a colleague and a friend whose daughter was getting married. This was going to be a big wedding, a celebration at the church, and then a reception at a different location afterwards. And the week of the celebration arrived and the groom was 
uh, a resident of Canada and was actually supposed to be flying down on Monday, supposed to be coming down. And then he called and said that work had gotten out of control and he wasn't going to be able to come Monday. And so he was going to have to come a day later. And then he made another excuse the next day. And then things were getting more tense as Wednesday came and he still hadn't arrived. And by the time Thursday came, he admitted that he wasn't coming at all. You can imagine the devastation for the bride of being left at the altar. Well, it was easy to cancel the wedding. Her dad was the pastor and the church wasn't going to charge them. But when it came to the reception, everything was prepaid. And so they made this decision. The bride said that she wanted all of those friends and all of those family members to come together for a celebration anyway. And they danced and they sang and the audacity and the courage of that bride to show up at that party and to take the microphone and to look at all of the friends and family that had gathered there to support her, to honor her, to be with her at a very difficult time. She expressed her gratitude to them and then she said something that just is so true about life. It was all paid for anyway. That's the nature of grace. That even in our moments of emptiness, those are the moments where God's abundance arrives. And so what we discover in this story is in this miracle that there are these six stone jars. Let me show you what they might have looked like back in that day and age. They're discarded. They're tossed to the side. They've served their purpose. They were for the ritual cleansing They were for a very ordinary purpose that Jesus says, fill to the brim. And then when they do, and they draw it out, they saved the best for last. That the wine was incredible. What's the purpose of this miracle? Jesus takes those things that are discarded, those things that are set aside, and he turns them into his glory. Now, one of the amazing things about the Gospel of John is not just in the stories themselves and the encounters themselves, but how these stories line up together. I'm, I'm amazed by how often we miss some of the, not just the nuance, but the point of the Gospels because we read each of these different stories independently. But in John chapter 2, there are two of these stories that are sandwiched together. It's this incredible act of grace that is the moment of Jesus rescuing this wedding feast. And then right next to that is the moment when he goes to Jerusalem and he tosses over the tables in anger. It is the cleansing of the temple. And when Jesus does this, I think that the Gospel of John is put together in such a way, not just with an eye towards chronology, but for us to notice. To notice that if you come to Jesus empty, that he will fill you. But if you come to Jesus full of the wrong kinds of things, like it was in the temple... He will empty you in order to fill you. One of my favorite TV episodes of all time is a particular episode that takes place during this show. Produced by Netflix, it's The Crown. Season 3, episode 7, that's called Moondust. And kind of the figure that's being focused on in this episode is that of Prince Philip. And Prince Philip is kind of at midlife, and the present, kind of the presenting issue or moment is Apollo the 11th. 
And so you might even recall what it was like to gather around television sets and to build an anticipation of what humanity had accomplished. Prince Philip himself was a pilot, and he even pushed his own plane as high as it could go, far beyond what they should recommend. He was training personally. He was going through a midlife crisis. But it wasn't just any kind of crisis. It wasn't just psychological. It was also spiritual. It was a crisis of faith on the heels of his mother's death. Here was a little table that was portrayed of her room that he didn't have the courage to clean. Notice the cross and next to the picture of himself. And so Prince Philip, in the midst of all of this, welcomes a new dean, a new pastor to the royal family. And this dean is focused on helping people to restore and to recover their lost faith, even those people who were supposed to model the faith because they were clergy. And so the scene that I want to share with you is a moment where Philip finally gets to the point where all of the adventure, all of the emptiness collides into one another and he goes before this group of clergy and he goes before them and with humility he says this. There wasn't a specific moment um, when it started. It's been more of a gradual thing. A drip, drip, drip of doubt, disaffection, disease, dis- discomfort. People around me have noticed my general uh, irritability. Now, of course, that's nothing new. I'm generally a cantankerous sort. But even I would have to admit that there's been more of it lately. Not to mention the almost jealous fascination with the achievements of these young astronauts. Compulsive overexercising and an ability to find calm of satisfaction or of any fulfillment. And when you look at all of these symptoms, of course, it doesn't take a genius to tell you. They all suggest that I'm slap bang in the middle of, I can't even say what kind of crisis. And of course, others have heard about people hitting that kind of crisis. And you know, just like them, you look in all the usual places and resort to all the usual things to try to make yourself feel better. Some of which I can admit to this room. And some, I should not. My mother died recently. She saw that something was amiss. That's a good word, amiss. She saw that something was missing in her youngest child, her only son. Faith. How's your faith? She asked me. I'm here to admit to you that I've lost it. And without it, what's there? The loneliness, the emptiness, the anticlimax of going all the way to the moon to find nothing but haunting desolation, a ghostly silence, gloom, 
That's what faithlessness is, as opposed to finding wonder and ecstasy in the miracle of divine creation, God's own design and purpose. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say the solution to our problems, I think, is not in the ingenuity of the rocket or the science or the technology or even the bravery. No, the answer is in here or in here, wherever it is that faith resides. And so Dean Woods having ridiculed you for you and these poor blocked lost souls. What you were trying to achieve here at St. George's house. I now find myself full of respect and admiration and not a small part of desperation. As I come to say, help. Help me. And to admit, while those three astronauts deserve our praise and respect for their undoubted heroism, I was more scared of coming here to see you than I would have been in going up in any bloody rocket. Prince Philip comes to the point where all of the adventure all of the exercise, all of those usual efforts of the things that we do to fill our lives to distract us from the emptiness that might be there, from the grief and the sorrow that God strips away all of that in his life and he's left with the emptiness and the admission and the desperation of just looking at a group a fellow clergy and saying, help me. Come to Jesus full and he will have to empty you in order to fill you. We live in an age that is fascinated with technology and adventure and excitement, achievement. All those things that you will try to fill your life with, they won't give you the life-giving belief that is promised in the Gospel of John. In fact, in the Gospel of John, the Mother Mary only appears twice. She appears first in this, the wedding story of Cana. And the only other moment that the Mother Mary appears is at the foot of the cross. She appears at the cross where Jesus is hanging for the sins of the world. It's in that moment where Jesus provides for her and the emptiness of himself becomes the fullness of what's available to us. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave and being found in human likeness and being born in human form. He emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus empties himself so that we might be full. So what do we do with this? Maybe you're in a place of emptiness. Maybe you're in a place of fullness. 
Maybe you're in a place of abundance. But in the meantime, regardless of what you're feeling, what do we do while we wait? We wait, do we do this? We listen to the words of Mother Mary when she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you, do whatever Jesus told you. In other words, you're called to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're called to love your neighbor. You're called to be generous. You're called to forgive. You're called to provide for your family as Jesus provided for Mary in the cross. You're called to love and respect and be patient and kind and good and faithful. We turn the other cheek. We go the extra mile. We pray, we read, we wait with longing. We do all of these things because it's what he told us to do. And so whether you are empty, full, or abundant, do whatever he tells you. Which reminds me, I should probably go put some gas in my wife's car. Let's pray. Eternal God, we're incredibly grateful for the sign of what happened at that wedding feast in Cana. And God, we long for the true wedding feast that you say is coming in the book of Revelation. A true wedding where humanity and your own presence become one. Thank you that we get to be the bride that you cherish, the party that you rescue, and that even our emptiness can become your sweet abundance. And so, Father, I pray for anybody who is stuck in the midst of that emptiness, who feels overwhelmed by life, or maybe feels like that they're not good enough. I also pray, God, for people who are full, people who are full of themselves, full of activities. And I pray, God, that wherever we are, that eventually we find ourselves on our knees in celebration best that came at the last, your sweet abundance that overflows. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.